our direction now. Let's turn our attention to the Word of God. I'm going to ask you all to turn in your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21, and beginning in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, You shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. And they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches down from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that were before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Heavenly Father, we come before you once again to stand under the ministry of your word, and we are all students here of you, and as your students, we look to you now to instruct us in your ways, I pray that you would use me as a mouthpiece to speak forth thy word with truth, I pray that my my mind and my heart and my lips would be clear and accurate and exalting to you. We ask, Heavenly Father, that our hearts would be humble and our ears would be open and that we would behold you, O Lord, as our King, our risen King, in whom we serve. As we remember this Palm Sunday, when you entered Jerusalem, rightfully so, receiving the praise of all the men and women there, O Lord, we ought to praise you and worship you day after day, for we are living sacrifices to you. O oh Lord, we pray now that you would, your Holy Spirit would superintend and overshadow all aspects of the sermon. In Christ's name, amen. Today is what we traditionally call Palm Sunday, as I said before, and it kicks off Passion Week. This begins the final week in which Jesus would have his public ministry um, from, from the Sunday, the first Sunday that he entered Jerusalem uh, until Easter Sunday would be the last week of his life um, in public ministry. Of course, he would be risen from the dead and he would continue um, as he rules from heaven as our risen king. Uh, but this would be the last week of his life. And in the last week of his life, as he enters Jerusalem, he's entering for a very specific purpose Yes, it's to celebrate Passover with his disciples, 
but he's also going there because he knows he's going to die. He knows his time has come. Throughout the ministry of Christ, there have been several occasions where his enemies sought to take him and to kill him and destroy him. But as John the Apostle reminds us repeatedly through his account, his hour had not yet come. For the Son of Man would not be taken a day sooner or a day later than God had ordained. And he had ordained that this would be the week that he would give his life for us and our sins. And so fitting, although he had been to Jerusalem several times, it was upon this week that he enters in what many theologians and scholars and your Bibles will call the triumphant entry. Why is it called the triumphant entry? Well, it wasn't seen as a triumphant entry at the time. And as we unpack the text, we'll understand a little more of the details. The triumphant entry was the phrase used to describe when Roman emperors and generals would return to Rome after a military uh, mission and conquest uh, for the Roman Empire. When they would return to Rome, those emperors and generals would ride triumphantly with large parades and flowers poured out on the streets, uh, and they would, they would ride on their steeds, and they would come down through the main uh, road into Rome. The people would cheer, and there would be a sense of exaltation of the power of Rome. No doubt, as the church developed, they looked back on this event and saw this as Christ's triumphant entry. And although it doesn't seem triumphant after all that would occur in the days to follow, it indeed was a triumph because Christ was beginning his, or finishing his work rather, to crush the work of Satan, to crush the work of the serpent, and to defeat sin, to defeat Satan, and to defeat death. But more importantly, the triumphant entry tells us that Jesus is the king. When he stood before Pontius Pilate, Pilate said to him, your people accuse you of being a king and trying to usurp Caesar. Are you a king? And Jesus says, I am indeed a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. And if it were, I'd have a thousand of my angels and they would destroy you. Jesus is a king. And God ordained it that when he was crucified in three different languages, a placard was put above him on the cross, Jesus, King of the Jews. And so as we look at this passage, we see that there is a lot occurring, there's a lot developing, and, and there, the, the messianic hopes are high among the people of God. There's excitement that's built up in the events leading up to Palm Sunday, and, and, and with that said, there is also an insight into the temperament of the crowds, the fickleness of the crowds. For the same people that are crying out Hosanna in the highest would be the same people only days later that would say, crucify him, crucify him, we'll have Barabbas. Crowds can be fickle. People can be fickle. But the Lord knows the hearts of men, and he entrusts himself to no one. So we're going to look at three aspects of this sermon. One is the planned entrance of King Jesus. The second is the prophecy of King Jesus. And thirdly is the praise of King Jesus. Let's look firstly at the preparation or the planned entrance of King Jesus. We know that this was not something that happened randomly. This was planned and prepared before the foundations of the world. God had ordained it. God had uh, directed 
how this would take place. And we are told here in chapter 21 that as the time comes, Jesus himself directs his apostles in preparation for his own entrance. It says in verse 1, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say to them, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. Now I want you to see here that that Bethany, Bethany was where they were and where they were coming from and that was where Lazarus was healed and they were heading for Bethpage, the uh, which is uh, in Hebrew, the house of unripened figs. And they would come to stop on Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives stood above Jerusalem at 2,600 feet above sea level. It's a, it's a very high mountain. It would take time to get up there. And they were going to descend to Bethpage, which was right outside Jerusalem, and then into Jerusalem. And as they were approaching Bethpage, and particularly the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent these disciples to to procure a donkey for them, to procure a colt, rather. And he said to them, they were to go in, and if anyone asks, you say simply, the Lord has need. And of course, we know that the result of that is that they were given the colt. So the question that arises is, how did Jesus know that they were going to be, he was going to be asked, the disciples were going to be asked, you know, why are you taking this colt? Now, there are two different explanations. There's a naturalistic explanation that Jesus, ahead of time, had had made an arrangement with the owner of the cult, and so this was a code word to simply uh, pass through. But, But that's folly, and I don't think we should even entertain such a thought. I think the truth of the matter is we have to understand that Christ, in his... Uh, even in his humanity, still possessed the attributes of God. He is still God in the flesh. Colossians 2.9 tells us, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. We had this discussion even recently in uh, our men's Bible study. We were discussing uh, that in Jesus' humanity, he just give up all attributes of his deity? No. And what we see here is that the fact that he predicted and knew that the cult would be there, and he knew that the mother would be with him, and he knew that someone would ask, what are you doing with this donkey? And he knew that if you said the Lord had need, the person would respond well, demonstrates that Jesus possessed omnipotence. He knew all things. He knew what was going to happen before it occurred. He knew what was in men's hearts. Like he said to the Pharisees when he healed the man lowered through the roof, he said to them, uh, why in your hearts do you say, why does this man forgive sin? He knew what they were thinking without even hearing it. Because he could see and pierce into the hearts of men. He knew Nathanael was sitting under the tree praying in John 1.48. And in the same way, Christ knew that a donkey and her colt would be tied in the village ahead of them. Secondly, I believe it was his sovereign will that moved upon the heart of the man who owned the donkey and the colt. The donkey, when the man yielded uh, to the response, the Lord has need, this is clearly uh, Christ moving upon the hearts of man. Scripture tells us that God uh, uh, moves upon the heart of the king and it's in his hands to do as he wills in the same way he could direct anyone to bring about his purpose and his will. But thirdly, I think, when he says the Lord has need, 
The term Lord, which is Kyrios, invokes the right of a king. The Lord took the very title that was used for Caesar, Kyrios Caesar. He claimed the position of ultimate sovereignty and lordship. He had a right to that donkey. He had a right to anything he asked for. Psalm 24.1 The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. If the Lord has need, who are we to withhold? But does the Lord need anything? No. But if the Lord wants it, he has the absolute right of a king to require and demand anything he asks. And what we see here is the sovereign will of Jesus Christ on full display, orchestrating and designing his grand entrance into Jerusalem. Now this should remind us something, that it wasn't just the entrance into Jerusalem that was planned and orchestrated by God. Every event that would take place for that week was orchestrated and designed by God. Nothing would take place that was outside of the control of God. We know that it was the determined will that Christ would go to the cross. It was foreordained by God. It was no accident. Everything was purposefully and deliberate. Imagine if you had one week left to live. What would you do? How would you structure that last week of your life? How would you organize the events? I would hope that you would design it all to glorify God in every last minute you had left. And that is precisely what Jesus would do. The second point we want to look at is the prophecy of the king. Jesus entering Jerusalem in this fashion is a direct fulfillment of prophecy. All of Christ's life was a fulfillment of prophecy of the word of God. And as we get to this portion, as we get to this uh, part, we see that even in this, Matthew recognizes this all took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, verse 4. And he quotes from Zechariah chapter 9, combined with Isaiah 62.1, and, and, and kind of gives this formulatic statement to refer to what took place. And that says, Say to the daughters of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a coal, colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now I want you to turn in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 9, so we'll go look at the fuller, um, the fuller prophecy. Zechariah is one of the minor prophets right before the Gospel of Matthew. And in Zechariah chapter 9, which can be found in page 796 of your pew Bibles, I'm going to read from verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations and his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And as for you also, 
Because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double, for I have bent Judah as my bow, and I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior sword. And so indeed, this was came to the mind of the apostles at this event, that this was a direct fulfillment of God's word and prophecy to Zechariah, that this would indicate the coming of the king to Jerusalem, and it would be a peaceful reign that he would rule, and his rule would extend to all nations. And not only is it to make a, fulfill a prophecy, but this was to make a statement. If one thing is true, you could learn a lot about a person by the car they drive. If you see someone driving a minivan, and it's filled with Cheerios, and it's filled with soda, you know that's a family person. If you see somebody who's 55 years old and just bought a brand new Corvette and is speeding up the Spring Parkway, you know that man's having a midlife crisis. If you see someone driving a 20-year-old car that's on its last leg, you know this is a person who's frugal and wants to save money. In the same way, you can tell a lot by the kind of form of transportation Christ enters into Jerusalem with. He could have walked in. He could have rode a steed and a horse. But in riding the donkey, by riding a colt, it was a statement of exactly what kind of king Christ would be. First of all, there is a, it's a symbolic act that reflects uh, aspects of the Old Testament and how the rulers in the Old Testament presented themselves. Particularly in the book of Judges, it was during the time of Judges that many of uh, the judges in that period would ride on donkeys and it was a symbol of their rule and authority over Israel. In 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 2, King David rode on a donkey, returning to Jerusalem via the Mount of Olives after Absalom's rebellion. It was a statement that he was the true king and was returning to Jerusalem to establish his rule and his authority. When David had appointed Solomon to be king, what did David do to establish his authority that everybody would know he was the sovereign ruler? He had him sit on a mule and taken to Gihon to be anointed by Zadok the king. That's in 1 Kings one thirty-three. It was a demonstration of authority. It was a demonstration of rule. But also he chose the lowliest of animals. A donkey was a beast of burden. It was not, it was not the, the symbol of power like a, like a Roman steed. It was, it, was, it was a lowly animal. It symbolized the ministry of Christ. Come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Now, it's interesting because it wasn't just any donkey. There was a donkey and her colt. The colt is the baby. It is the younger 
uh, uh, um, donkey. It's the child. And what's important to see here that it was never ridden before. It had not yet been broken. Now, if anybody knows anything about any kind of livestock or has been on a farm, donkeys are hard animals to break. You ever see here that someone's as stubborn as a donkey, right? They dig their heels and you ever see a donkey, they dig their heels into the ground. It's where we get the term backsliding from. The word backsliding in the Old Testament is used as a representation of a donkey that digs its heels in and resists its master. This unbroken cult was the perfect, pure, virgin uh, um, beast that would carry the Lord Jesus into Jerusalem. It symbolized that Jesus was coming not for war, but peace. To make peace and reconcile man to God. He was coming to be as a sheep led to the slaughter, to offer himself as a sacrifice and to establish his reign of peace as the prince of peace to all nations through the gospel. There are many details symbolic in the prophecy of Zechariah. For instance, it, it talks about taking away the chariots to end the main vehicles used for war, to take away war horses, Uh, the battle bow would be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations and his rule will be from sea to sea. Not only did he fulfill prophecy, but he made a statement about the kind of kingdom that he was ruling. You know, it's interesting because in other parts of scripture, Jesus says, I did not come to bring peace, but to bring war. To separate a man from his son, a mother from her daughter, a brother from their sister. For those of your closest of relatives, there, there will be division, there will be, there will be hostility. And isn't that the truth? Those who follow Christ will uh, find themselves in a position where we're hated for the sake of Christ. But Christ was demonstrating that he was the servant of God, the servant of the Lord. And Isaiah prophesies of the servant of the Lord in his prophecies in Isaiah 40s and into the 50s. It's all regarding the ministry of Jesus Christ. And it was his role to establish peace to the nations. And finally, the third point of our sermon is the praise of the people. The praise of the people. What kind of response was generated from Jesus' entry into Jerusalem? I think this is what we focus on most. We have all the palm plants here, and the people laid palms down. And and this was typical um, in this environment. There were palm trees everywhere. And, um, And it was symbolic of people acknowledging someone who was of great authority, someone who was regal, someone who was a king. But in this royal procession, there are three aspects I want you to think about. Number one, it was a large crowd. It was a large crowd. We have politicians. They brag and get excited that they fill a stadium with 20,000 people. But one thing we have to realize something is that in this context, the word, uh, word used here for crowd literally means large crowd. 
And when I say large crowd, the Greek word connotes about two and a half million people were there. Two and a half million people, absolutely. There are three reasons why there would have been such an enormous crowd in Jerusalem at this time. Number one, it's Passover. People are coming from all over the Roman Empire as a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Passover. This is the high holy day of the Jewish calendar. You don't go to Jerusalem on Passover. You're not a Jew. It's that serious. This is like, this is the highest, most demanding day. And so Jews from all over the world are coming to Jerusalem. So it's not just the Jews who live in Jerusalem, but it's Jews from everywhere. And on top of that, you have the Jews who lived in Jerusalem. These were the people who have experienced Jesus, who have seen Jesus in action. Jesus has been to Jerusalem on Passover on several occasions. He's preached in Jerusalem. He's prophesied in Jerusalem. He's told parables in Jerusalem. But then there's another aspect to this. Only days before, Jesus performed the greatest miracle of his earthly ministry. He rose Lazarus from the dead. And we know that this was magnificent because when he raised Lazarus from the dead, it tells us in John 11 that great crowds were there because a lot of people knew Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. They were a prominent family in Bethany. They were well known. And the funeral had taken place. The Lord allowed the funeral to take place. It was four days after he was buried that Christ arrived. And it was in that context that Pharisees and religious leaders from all of Jerusalem were there as well. There were thousands of people potentially in Bethany at this time. And when Christ raised Lazarus from the dead, man, if there was anything to whip up the crowds, that would have been a miracle. So much so that in John chapter 12, you read the immediate response of this religious establishment in Jerusalem. What is their response? What are we going to do? The people are going, in fact, why why paraphrase it? Let's go to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, rather, verse 40. Five, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them, now notice, a lot of people were converted at this time. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And they didn't tell the Pharisees because they wanted the Pharisees to believe. They went there like little tattletales. Could you believe what Jesus did? And so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and they said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. 
The Jewish establishment did not see the raising of Lazarus from the dead as a sign from God. It did not move them one inch to believe in Christ. All it did was provoke them to anger. They were terrified. They were terrified they were going to lose their grip of power on the people of Israel. They felt threatened. They said, if this keeps up, we're going to lose everything. We're going to lose our position, our power. The Romans will come. They'll wipe us out. We're doomed. They saw Jesus as a threat. That's an amazing thing about the power of God. The unbeliever, when the unbeliever sees the power of God in the lives of other Christians... It doesn't spur them on to faith. It provokes them to anger. They're threatened by the power of God. The wicked are threatened when God moves in the lives of his people. And just as God raised Lazarus from the dead, God raises us from the spiritual dead. And when you become born again Christians, when you're new creations in Christ, the people around you will feel threatened when they see the power of God in your life. And so they could only determine one thing. Caiaphas, in his own political savvy, said, we got to kill him. It's better one man die than we all lose. (laughs) And even that, the sovereignty of God was ordaining for him to say that prophetically as the high priest. For indeed, Jesus would die, as John tells us. John had access to Caiaphas and to the high priestly Family, and so he would have known these things. And so you have all of this. The people who had witnessed Lazarus raising from the dead, this would have whipped up the crowds, people coming, pilgrims from all over. And then you have those within Jerusalem who were already there. Of course, this was the perfect storm for people to come and to welcome Jesus with a grand welcome. And that's exactly what happened. He received the royal treatment. He received the royal treatment. Um, Next month, King Charles will be coronated King of England. And I'm sure the pomp and the grandeur and the festivity of it will be something to behold. I know when uh, Queen Elizabeth was coronated 50-some-odd or 60 years ago, it was a big affair. Imagine now the pomp and the circumstance of it would be amazing, and I encourage you to watch it. In the same way, this was the royal treatment. They rolled out the red carpet literally for Jesus. They threw their cloaks on the road to make a soft ride for him. They threw palms on the ground as a way of worshiping and paying homage to him. It truly was a celebration. And they also praised him. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They were shouting, they're singing. Their minds were filled with messianic overtones. And by the way, these weren't just obscure quotes that they were pulling out of thin air. This was quoted directly from the Egyptian Halal Psalms in Psalm 113 through 118. Directly out of Psalm 118, 25 and 26. These were psalms that were traditionally sung in Jewish worship at major festivals in Jerusalem, specifically during Passover, the Feast of Tabernacles. It would be kind of like 
when we sing Christmas carols at Christmas, we see Hark the Herald Angels Sing, they would sing Hosanna in the Highest, and they would sing, Blessed is he who comes in the Lord. These were traditional hymns and songs they sang at times of festivity and holiday. And they were singing these songs in recognition that Christ was sent by God. In Luke's Gospel, in Luke's Gospel, the Pharisees rebuked Jesus. They said, tell them to be quiet. He says, if they don't sing, the rocks will cry out in my name. What an encouragement we need to know is that if we won't sing to Jesus, the angels will sing, the rocks will sing, all of creation will sing the praise of King Jesus. How could you come to church and not sing? I'm thankful the last couple of weeks I really heard the voices today. The voices were really loud. They were encouraging last week. They were loud and encouraging. And that should be us. We should come to church with a song in our hearts filled with joy. From the heart the mouth speaks. If God has put a song in your heart of delight in Christ and praise and you truly understand who Christ is, you won't be able to contain it. Yet, we come to church murmuring under our, under our breath. Oh, may that encourage us to sing more. The word Hosanna means Lord save us. It's a nationalistic chant. It's like saying God save the queen or God bless America. They're looking to Christ. They see that this is someone who indeed is of God and could very well be the Messiah. And they're excited. And so the result, it was a big event. Verse 10 tells us the whole city was stirred up. The word there, stirred up, in Greek, literally means seismic. This was a seismic event. It it shook up the whole place. People were rattled. It was a big ordeal. I don't think we've ever experienced anything like that in our lifetime. I mean, when dignitaries come to New York City, we know it could be a seismic event in the sense that everything shuts down. There's a sign on the Springbrook Parkway. It'll say, gridlock alert, Manhattan today, UN meeting. They'll shut down all the roads. There's, but still, nothing can capture the, 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 just the pandemonium, the excitement, the enthusiasm at this event. Yeah, we've seen politicians who've won elections and they have excitement at their events, but that's nothing in comparison to what took place here in Jerusalem on this Palm Sunday. And it's a foretaste. It is a foretaste, my brothers and sisters, what will happen when Christ returns. Because when Christ returns, the Bible tells us every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Some will do it joyfully like us, and some are going to be forced. And they are going to be brought to their knees in weeping and tears, and they will proclaim the praise of Christ. Even in anger, they will proclaim his praise. Christ is enthroned on the praise of his people, and he will be worshipped by all one day. In the same way, I, I feel that we ought to have a foretaste of this every week in church. 
It should be seismic. It should be stirred up our hearts. Not something out of control. Not something that is, is carnal. But a deep welling up of the spirit within. And yet, what was the response of the people? We go back to Matthew 21. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21. It says in verse 10, When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. In spite of their excitement, in spite of their enthusiasm, in spite of their zeal, they were still missing the mark. They had fallen short in identifying exactly who Christ was. In fact, if you look at the expression there, it's almost like there's a sort of pejorative there. Because in John 1.46, we're reminded that, that when, um, when Jesus had presented himself, the response was, can anything good come from Nazareth? Nazareth was not seen as, on the map as a place of royalty, as a place of grandeur. It was seen as something like, eh? You mean those backcountry hicks up there in Galilee? What good is coming out of there? They say the prophet, but do they really understand who Jesus is? Yes, he may be the fulfillment of the prophet of Deuteronomy 18, who Moses said, one like me will come and you must listen to him. But he is more than that. He is the king. He is the king of Israel. He is the king of the Gentiles. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. He is the sovereign potentate of all the universe. And they did not quite grasp that. He was the Christ, the son of the living God. You see, the problem with the Jews in their time is they were looking for a Messiah, but they wanted a Messiah of their own making. They wanted a political Messiah who would meet all their physical and carnal needs, a Messiah who would meet their demands, a Messiah who would, who would stimulate their, their political ambitions and their, and their emotional uh, uh, carnality. Men are always looking for messiahs. It wasn't just in Jerusalem, but even today, men are looking for messiahs. And, and we will create messiahs, and, and, and political uh, zealots will put themselves in position to tell people what they want to hear to rise to power. But Jesus would have none of that. Jesus wasn't concerned with the praise of men. He was concerned about the glory of God. In John's Gospel, chapter 6, when they actually tried to make Jesus a king, they wanted to coronate him then, and he wouldn't permit it. Look at John chapter 6. It says in verse 14, this was after he fed the 5,000, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. 
Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. They wanted to make him king right then and there. He could have led thousands of people in a revolt against Rome right then and there. But he would have none of it. Jesus is not interested in human kingdoms. Satan said to me, bow before, Satan said to Jesus, bow before me and I will give you all the kingdoms of this world. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You shall worship the Lord your God and you shall worship him alone. The nations are promised to Jesus. He will inherit the nations. But for now, Christ was called to die for sinners. And nothing was going to deviate him for his plan. I think many of us are guilty of the same thing. I think many of us want to hijack Jesus and formulate him into our own vision, our own purpose, or what we think is important in our lives. We want to hijack him into our political movements. We want to hijack Jesus and to our even our church movements. I, I've been seeing advertisements uh, uh, for transgender people on the internet, and it says Jesus understood, uh, understands us. Oh my, where are we going? Churches today, by and large, I think we have some great churches. We have big churches. We have great crowds. We have seismic worship services. And they sing Jesus' praise. But more importantly, the question for all of us today, do you acknowledge Jesus as your king? That's really what this all comes down to. The Lord Jesus would would preach some of the harshest sermons in that last week leading up to his death. He would preach some really difficult parables that would provoke the anger of his listeners. To those who knew him, to those who were born again, they were delightful sermons. To those who hated him, it provoked them to wrath and to eventually killing Jesus. My brothers and sisters, today I ask you, is Jesus the king of your life? I'm not asking you to acknowledge simply that he is king today and say amen, hosanna to Christ who is the son of David. I am asking you not to acknowledge intellectually, but I'm asking you practically, is Jesus king of your life? He is the king, whether you believe it or not, that's a fact, that's an objective reality. The question is, do you submit to his rule in your life? Are you a subject of King Jesus? Or do you think that somehow you have a right to live life the way you want to? Do you think that you are in a democracy in the kingdom of God? Do you think you have the right to protest against Jesus? This is not the United States of America. It is the kingdom of God. And he is a sovereign ruler And he demands absolute fidelity and obedience. We don't like that kind of language as Americans. But I'm telling you, that is what being a Christian is about. 
It's about owning Jesus as Lord, not just on Sunday mornings, but every day of your life. It is about owning Jesus as Lord of your heart, all the things you have affections for, the things you love, the things you hate. It's having him being Lord over your mind, what you think about, what you process, what you muse on, what you delight in. And he is Lord over our wills. When I say he's Lord over our wills, the theme of our life should be the theme of Christ and Gethsemane. Lord, not my will, but thine will be done. I want to conclude with this. Luke tells us that as Jesus approached the city of Jerusalem before the triumphant entry, he looked out at the crowds and he perceived before he even entered, before this whole thing began, it says in Luke 19, 41 through 44, it says when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept. And he said, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you, and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Christ looked upon Jerusalem. He knew the people would praise him, but he knew they would crucify him. And he knew that judgment was coming on Jerusalem. The Bible says judgment is to begin with the house of God. And if it's to begin with us, what will become of the unbeliever and the reprobate? I'm convinced that one of the greatest tragedies that we are seeing in our day and age the greatest tragedies that is happening in our society today is not so much of what's happening in the world. It's not so much the transgenders. It's not so much the people who are atheists. The greatest tragedy today is what's happening in the church of Jesus Christ. The greatest tragedy is that we, his people, have not truly submitted our wills to Christ. The tragedy is is that churches across America are consumed with the world and with the flesh and with themselves and they are not consumed with Jesus. And I say this not in an accusatory way, but I look at my own heart, my own life, and I look at the lives of the people under our care. And I wonder, does Jesus weep when he looks at the church today? Christ is returning The king will return. And when he returns, will he find faith on the earth? I am glad Jesus is king. But I know that Jesus being king has serious implications on my life. It means Jesus owns me. It means he has a right to govern my life. It means he has a right to tell me how to live, whether I like it or not. And it means that my life should be lived for his glory and for his honor and for his power and not for me. I pray that today our hearts will look forward to the day when Christ returns, not 
not on a donkey, not on a colt. Revelation 19 says when he returns, he's riding on a white horse. And he's coming in judgment. And may we be found secure in him on that day. And the only way we could find security, and here's the key, it is to trust him and believe in him fully with all your heart. To repent of your sins, to fully give your life to Christ. Not, okay, Lord, you have part of me, the rest is mine. It's full surrender. Lord, take all of it. My life is yours. I trust you entirely with my salvation and with every aspect of my life. And forgive me, Lord, for having those compartments where I want to be sovereign. Oh, Lord, be sovereign. Rule in my life. Then you will know what it truly is to be free. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this privilege and opportunity to worship Oh, Lord, as they worshiped you in Palm Sunday many years ago, I pray that our hearts will be filled to sing to you now, to glorify you, to honor you. But may the song not just be out of our lips on a Sunday morning. May it carry us through the week. May we sing to you. May our hearts and and minds be, be fixed on you, especially this week and leading up to Good Friday and Easter. I pray this would not be a week of carnality, but a week of spirituality to focus on you. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.